And Lord, you are our one defense. You are our righteousness. We have nothing but you. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Thank, for, thank you for all that you've stirred in our hearts. Thank you that we were dead and you made us alive. As Mike was just praying that you dethroned us. Lord, that was your mercy. What a mess we make of our own lives. And yet you've called us. You've adopted us. You are renewing us. And God, you're helping us along the way as we await your coming. So Lord, we, we want to ask this morning, once again, as we open up your word, that you would make it alive and powerful, that it would work its way into our hearts and in your mercy, once again, you would transform us into your likeness, your image, so that we would look more like you. So Lord, we bring all that's going on in our lives, the things we're struggling with, the things we're happy about, the things we're sad about, the things we're angry about, the things that confuse us. Lord, we bring it all to you. Our burdens financially, vocationally, relationally, we bring it all to you right now, Lord. And we bring it before your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in our midst and accomplish a work in us to the glory of and honor and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand real quick. Anyone need a Bible? We've got Bibles we'd love to put in your hand. If you need one, you can take it home with you. Just lift your hand high. Anyone need a Bible? We love to open up God's Word here today. We've got some back there. Anyone else need a Bible? All right, don't be bashful. We'll even give it to you if you want it. All right. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And we are going to be working our way through this passage. In your bulletin, you will see there's a place where you can take some notes if you are so inclined to do so. And hopefully this will be of help to you. But we, I've entitled the message this morning, When Jesus Becomes Religion. Because it's so easy for Jesus to become just a, a part of religion. It's just, he's, he's not the center of our lives. He's just a part of our everyday living and religion fits into that somewhere and Jesus fits into it. But we're in the middle of five stories, beginning in chapter two, verse one, going all the way through chapter three, verse six. We've got five stories that we're gonna be looking at. And so we still got a couple more to go. In these five stories, confrontation is going to intensify. In the first story, back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, there is some antagonism there. It's just not verbal. But when you work your way through that passage, you know, okay, something's about to happen here. Something is going on. I've entitled this gospel, if you remember way back a few weeks ago, Jesus in your face. I mean, that's this gospel. And Jesus is always right there. And so the confrontation begins in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And then it's going to continue to escalate until we get to chapter 3 in verses 1 through 6. And look how that ends in chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, that's Jesus, how to destroy him. That's where this is heading. And we're right in the middle 
of those stories at this point. Um, One commentator put it this way, in each encounter, the authority of Jesus explodes the formulas and categories into which people would press him. Jesus is like the expansive new wine that needs its own wineskin. Now, that's picking up language from our passage today. They're wanting to press Jesus into categories where they want him to fit. Now, Jesus is going to explode all of those. Um, back a few years ago, more than I even care to remember right now, I, used to, I actually used to teach psychology at Taylor University. I was a psychology prof there for three years, and my focus was developmental psychology. And so I focused really in on intro and child and adolescent. But in child psychology, I remember us teaching about assimilation and accommodation. And I want to give us a psychology lesson this morning. There are two ways that we process information. When we are confronted with new information, we have to do something with it. And what we want to do is assimilate that. And so assimilation is we put new information into existing frameworks. Think about your mind being a file cabinet or a file system. And so you've got this new information. You open up the file. Boom. Oh, I know what this is. I know where this goes. And you get it. And so it's the new idea fits into what is already known. Now, other times when we are, create or are confronted with new information, we have to do what we call accommodate. We have to alter existing frameworks or concepts or ideas in order to receive the new information. In other words, the new idea causes one to alter what is already, and it should say known there, what is already known. So you receive this new information. Again, think of your brain being a file cabinet, and you go, oh, I... I know there, there is no existing structure. So you get the telephone bill and you open the file cabinet and you know exactly where you want to put that. But now you've got a new piece of information. This doesn't fit anywhere. You're going to have to alter somehow your file system. You follow me so far? Okay, well, let's think about it this way right here. A child gets confronted with a furry animal, walks on all four legs, has a tail, makes a funny noise. Little by little, you say, see the doggy? Doggy becomes the term for that furry animal. So the child with the light will be confronted with another doggy, new information, aha, furry animal, walks on four legs, has a tail, makes a funny noise, doggy. Well, then at some point in time, the child is confronted with a furry animal, walks on all four legs, makes a funny noises, doggy. And you say, no, 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 kitty. And it's like, okay, how does this fit into the file system here? What happens there is accommodation. The new idea causes one to alter what is already known. You got to change existing structures in your mind. Okay, now we've got furry animal, walks on all four legs, has a tail, says woof, woof doggy. And we've got furry animal walks on all four legs, has a tail, says meow, kitty. You see, the structures have been changed. Now, the reason I'm telling you all that is because we are coming into this passage this morning. And what I think the point of this is, is that the religious leaders, the religious system of the day is wanting to take this new concept, Jesus, and force him into their existing structures when, in fact, Now, as they're confronted with Jesus, all their existing structures are going to be exploded. They've got to be altered. Jesus is not going to fit in. This is new. This is going to alter everything 
God's climax of redemption is right there in front of them in in Jesus. And he's not just going to squeeze into exactly where they want him. They want Jesus to fit into their status quo. They want them, Jesus, to fit into what they are presently doing. Well, Jesus is going to alter everything. And so here's our passage that's in front of us this morning. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And it says this. Follow along as I read. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding feast, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Now he's going to continue on with two illustrations. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, what, what is Jesus saying here? What's the question being asked? What is Jesus' response? What is he saying? Well, we have three points we want to make from this passage. The first one, and this is what goes in your blanks. The first one is the confrontation. That's in verse 18. And this is a question about religious practice. And so they, the, the disciples, John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, they are fasting is what verse 18 tells us. There's no reason given for the fast. This is a voluntary fast. In the Old Testament, we have one required fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But now fasting was a good thing. People engaged in this from time to time. Um, and so they added fasts to their lives. For instance, in Luke chapter 18, we see the Pharisee who's before God and there's the sinner man. And this is an awful scene where he's thanking God he's not like sinners, you know, this guy right here. And he begins to go down through all of his accolades. I fast two times a week. I give of my tithes. You know, he's just honoring himself in the presence of God, which by the way is a bad thing to do. But notice what he's saying. I fast two times a week. The Pharisees had a habit, a practice of fasting two days a week from sunrise to sunset, Monday and Thursday. And many Jewish people engaged in that. It was a part of religious devotion. It was a part of faithfulness. The early church, they also fasted two days a week, but they did not want to be associated with the Pharisees. They did not fast on Monday and Thursday. They chose Wednesday and Friday as their fasting days, because they wanted, again, to be very devoted. So generally, when we look at fasting, generally fasting is abstaining from anything, not just food, but it can be abstaining from anything to more clearly focus on the Lord, to realize more fully our dependence, to stir up renewed devotion to the Lord. The purpose is to take our eyes off the things of this world and focus completely on God. So it's often associated with prayer as well. Fasting and prayer often go hands in hand, hand in hand. It helps us gain a new perspective and a renewed reliance upon God as we await his coming. So you think about the coming 
of the Lord and we want to be faithful and we don't want to be distracted. We don't want other things to, to be our constant focus. And so fasting reminds us that we are not dependent on these things. We instead are dependent on the Lord. So it's a good thing. So they come to Jesus though. It goes on and says, and the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the question is not how often, how many days, but just the question of fasting. It's, again, it's not a bad question. It's really one about devotion or faithfulness. If there's any hint of hostility behind it, it's getting at the point of our message. Jesus you are not fitting in to our religious system. Why? And so that's where the confrontation, that's where the hostility is beginning to build. Now, before we even work our way through the passage, I want us to connect with what's going on in this passage. Okay, we may think, oh, there goes the Pharisees again, old covenant. I mean, we're in the new covenant. What does this have to do with us? What this has to do with us is everything because what we've got to realize, and this is where we're all gonna have to be honest with ourselves this morning is we've got to realize that often what we want from Jesus is also to fit into our world. We don't want him to transform anything. We don't want him to alter anything. We don't want him to mess with our lives. We've got a nice little spot, an existing framework. We want him to fit right in. That's the Jesus file. And we've got all this other stuff going on in our lives. And our attitude can be, we want a Jesus who doesn't require anything of us. A Jesus of convenience. Jesus, you fit right here. Don't mess with my life. And as we work our way through this passage, we all have to do what I've had to do for the last three weeks. Is really wrestle with, what have I done with Jesus? Have I put Jesus comfortably in a corner of my life? That's where Jesus belongs. Stay. Sit. That's where you belong. Or is my entire life oriented around the person and the work and the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's the question that's brought to Jesus. Now, we've got a second point in your bulletin there. Jesus' immediate answer. That's our point number two. And now notice, the Messiah's presence causes a different response. And this is going to be found in verses 19 through 20. The Messiah's presence is going to cause a different response. Jesus responds as he often does in situations where there's confrontation or a growing hostility. He answers by asking a question. And he's going to actually give them a metaphor. He wants them to think about this. Now, how much they grasp the metaphor, uh, we, we don't fully know. But they've got the context for understanding the metaphor. The metaphor of bridegroom is really rich in the Old Testament. If we had time, we could go to passages like Ezekiel 16 in verses 6 through 8. And then we have a gap in verses 9 through 59. That's because that's where the Israelites turn away from the bridegroom to go their own way. And then in verse 60, God picks it up with them again and restores them. We also have Isaiah 62, 5. There's a number of passages we could go to. In other words, there is a background for understanding this metaphor that Jesus is now giving to them. And there are two implications. How much they track with it, we don't know. But here are the implications that we have. The first one is the Messiah is here. That's what Jesus wants them to realize. And that's what's going to cause a different response. The Messiah is here. He goes, he goes on, he says this. Can the wedding guests fast 
while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. He's pulling all of this Old Testament imagery forward and saying Messiah is here. The Old Testament taught, everything the Old Testament taught about fasting is put aside. This looking forward to that day, this awaiting the day that could be so important for them. Remember the end of the definition here or the understanding of fasting is as we await his coming. But now that Messiah is here, there's to be a different response. And so for John's disciples, and the disciples of the Pharisee who didn't, Pharisees who did not recognize Jesus as Messiah, well, certainly they're going to continue fasting. Why? They're awaiting the coming of the Messiah. But for Jesus' disciples, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. They know who is in their presence. They aren't waiting for the one who would bring the kingdom of God. What has Jesus already announced? In his very first sermon, chapter 1, I think, verses 7 and 8, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. See, the kingdom is here. The Messiah is here. And when the king is in your midst, you don't fast. You party. There's a celebration to be had. As long as the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast. And so Jesus is trying to make that strong point. But there's a second implication he makes also in verse 20. The Messiah must die. He goes on and says, verse 20, the days will come, okay, this is going to be future, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. This would be startling if the, if the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John the Baptist got it or if Jesus' own disciples got it. They didn't quite understand this taking away part. Remember, when Jesus was going to the cross, I mean, they didn't expect that. They thought the kingdom was coming. If the Messiah is here, the kingdom, he's going to destroy all evil, everyone that opposes Israel. He's going to establish his rule and reign forever. That was the Old Testament promises. But being taken away, that's not what they anticipated at all. Normally, the guests would leave and the bridegroom, bride and the groom, they would begin their life together forever. There wouldn't be a taking away at this point. They wanted the victory that the king was supposed to bring. But Jesus knows his mission in life. He knows why he came. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He says it's the sick that need a physician. And the physician is here and so ultimately in this taken away is death, burial, resurrection, ascension. That's the taking away part that we have. That is going to happen. And Jesus says, then they will fast. Well, does that mean that we are supposed to fast today? Does that mean that this needs to be a part of our life? Well, this is not necessarily directive for us. But again, fasting can still have that same positive work in our lives. Why? Because we're awaiting his coming again. This is what one commentator said. It was with reference of sustaining the life of faith and growth in Christ's likeness that fasting continued to be practiced in early Christianity. The discipline of physical privation or denying oneself in fasting was an aid to watchfulness. We're looking forward to his coming in contrition and strength and sensitivity in the Christian life. All of it focused on as we await his coming. So when the bridegroom is taken away, is there a place for fasting again? Absolutely. 
because it's what centers our heart back on the Lord coupled with prayer. We look forward to that day and we want to be sober and we want to be vigilant and we want to be watchful. We want to be mindful of his coming back again. And so fasting can aid in that and that becomes the point that's there. So it can be good for us today. But Jesus is not saying, well, you better fast then. He's saying that's when they'll fast. Why? Because they're awaiting they're looking forward. And so it's something that we can do in our lives to help with our own contrition, our own watchfulness, our own readiness, our sensitivities to the Lord. But we've got a third point in this passage. That's Jesus's immediate answer. But Jesus is going to go on. He's going to develop this even more. And this is what I just want to call Jesus's ultimate answer. The Messiah's presence not only causes a different response, and so therefore you don't fast now. Fasting is for later. It's feasting now because the Messiah is here. The Messiah's presence also causes a radically different life. And Jesus is going to give two illustrations here to get at this bigger point that he's trying to make. The presence of the Messiah, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is going to explode everything. Nothing, nothing will be the same because Jesus is here. And so the message is, if you're trying to squeeze Jesus into this religious orientation, you're missing the point of the, the, the presence of the Messiah who is here. Now look at verse 21. He's gonna give two illustrations. And notice how emphatic he is. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Now, we don't like things to be overstated, do we? We like things to be clear. This is the way it is. And Jesus is saying, this is just the way it is. You wouldn't do this. If you had common sense, you would not take an unshrunk cloth and sew it onto an old garment. See, the old garment has already shrunk down. It's old. There's no more shrink left in it. But the new piece of cloth, it's going to shrink. And so what happens when it shrinks? It's going to tear away the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And so we've got this emphatic sense. And what Jesus is saying here is that really the old, that's John the Baptist. That's that religious tradition that Jesus has walked into. That's the old. The new is here and they are incompatible. You do not mix them. Jesus is teaching that the coming of the kingdom that he is inaugurating and the joy and celebration that results cannot coexist with what the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees are observing. They represent the status quo. This is the religious system. This is the way we do things. This is how we live our lives. Our lives are ordered. And Jesus is going to blow that away because he's here. There needs to be a radical reorientation. You can no longer be confronted with the furry, four-legged, tailed, making funny noises creature and say doggy something new is going on here you've got to reframe your thinking there's got to be a new category you got to stop what you're doing the reorientation toward the messiah everything becomes new at this point jesus is here and he goes on in verse 22 similar and no one again notice the emphatic nature of this no one puts new wine into old wineskins 
Why? Because if he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. It makes no sense to do that. New wine is for fresh wineskins. So again, that emphasis. And so you've got this wine put into this wineskin and what would happen? It would ferment. And so as the ferment, there would be expansion and it would expand that wineskin out into where it was just expanded as far as it could. So once that wine was gone, if you put new wine into that, what would happen? It would begin to expand again. That's not the proper way to do it. New wine demands new wineskins. And with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the behavior appropriate to that time period Old covenant life is no longer appropriate. There's something new here. The status quo must be discarded. Everything must be reoriented around Jesus. The two are incompatible. And here's the point that I think is being made in this passage. And and it really applies to our lives as well. Jesus does not fit into the religious system of the day. The presence of the Messiah, who's even here now, dead, buried, rose again, ascended. He's on his throne. And in that way, we live in the already, not yet. His kingdom is here, but it's still to come. Still, we celebrate him. We also look forward to him coming. But his very presence radically alters everything. And Jesus did not come to fit. That's assimilation into our lives. He came to transform. That's accommodation. The lives of everyone who becomes a follower of him. As Eric pointed out a few weeks ago, this is not just some Old Testament prophet who does miraculous things. Jesus is a game changer and nothing is ever going to be the same. And nothing should be the same in our lives as well. The coming of Jesus, which the Old Testament was constantly looking forward to, changes everything because everything pointed to Christ. It's not that that was bad back then. It's not that the disciples fasting uh, is a bad thing. It's just that Jesus coming is going to explode all of that because something new is here. The status quo, he's not going to fit into that. He can't just be integrated into things. Jesus alters, he transforms. And so when he goes to the synagogues, it's a new authority. Wow, he casts out demons. It's a new teaching. What is this? And even as we saw in chapter 2, verse 12, you get this whole sense of, we've never seen anything like this. This is new wine on the scene. It's exploding everything. So the question for the disciples of John and the Pharisees is not, will they make room for Jesus? Open up the file folder, the religious status quo, and put Jesus in. Are they going to make room for Jesus? No, that's not the question. The question is this. Are they going to forsake business as usual? And are they going to radically alter everything in their life to now center around this one who has come? That's the question for them. And that question remains for us too. And and here's where I want us to apply to us. And here's where we've got to pay close attention. The Pharisees were angered by Jesus' responses Because they wanted Jesus to fit in. They didn't want to transform everything, to have everything altered. And see, this is where we have to take an honest look at our own lives. Do we understand what that means for Jesus to alter everything in our life? Or are we trying to get Jesus to to fit in? 
you know, psychology will tell us that our natural desire is to assimilate. We don't like existing structures to be changed. We're lazy, and assimilation is the easiest way. That's why when people try to give us new ideas, nah, I don't believe that, rather than wrestle with it and see how that should change the way we think. Assimilation is our natural way of doing things. Do we just want Jesus to fit in? Do we just want to go about business as usual? To stay with the religious status quo. This is what a Christian looks like in the United States of America. And somehow Jesus needs to fit into that. Or are we somehow going to step back and say the Messiah is here. And that demands everything to be altered and to be changed. You see, Jesus alters everything. He's a game changer. Everything must change. The, The disciples back then, they had a hard time receiving this message. Because they just didn't get it. And I think we can have a hard time too. But the question is there for us. Will we just fit Jesus into our existing world, the things we live for? Or will we let Jesus radically alter everything in our life so that it's about him? That's the question that we're faced with. And I really wrestled with this passage for about the last three weeks, just really thinking through it. And it takes some time for this message to sink into our hearts. And I just don't want it to, be, to escape us. I want us to let this message sink into our hearts. What Jesus does not want is to simply become a part of our American dream. He doesn't want to just fit into all that we live for as we've been raised good citizens of the United States of America. Get a job, buy a home, have children, raise a family, believe in Jesus, pray before the meals, retire to pleasure. Whatever that American dream is, the things that consume our energies, consume our focus, Jesus doesn't want to just fit into that. Jesus wants to become the central defining reality for everything about our lives and vocation, focused on Jesus. Marriage, relationships, focused on Jesus. Having children, focused on Jesus. The money we have, focused on Jesus. Yes, even that savings account, focused on Jesus. Our future, focused on Jesus, where he radically alters everything. Do we just want to assimilate Jesus? Or do we want our entire life to be altered by him? Let me ask some questions. When we think about our time, when we think about our time, do we approach every day with Jesus as the central defining reality? See, we just got to let this sink in a little bit. Or are we just caught up in the flow? Again, I'm just going to use the term of the American dream. Where we're just living, we're cruising, we got it all together. Or is Jesus the central defining reality of all that. And as we approach our day, we are pondering our master who sits on his throne and has called us to be ambassadors of his great name. Is that true for us? Are people hearing the gospel because of you? Someone was a witness to you if you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you responded and received Jesus. And then you were made an ambassador. That's not left for people who have the gift of evangelism. It's not left for preachers. It's not left for the serious-minded. 
for every one of us, Jesus is to be that central defining reality. And we are to be proclaimers. It's to, it's to be what we live for. It's to be an ambassador of his great name. Is your church, our church here, growing to maturity because you're here? Because you're investing your gifts in the lives of people? Or are you an in and out person? Sneak in, do my church time. Why? That's the American dream. Religion should fit into that somewhere. Jesus has a place. And then I just scoot out because I got my life to live and that was Jesus' part and now I've got everything else to live for. Is your church different because you're here? Is the gospel going to unreached places because of you? And when the offering plates are passed, you feel conviction to give because you want to be a part of what God's doing in this world. The ministries of this church and the around 20% that we send out so the least reached people of the world can hear. Are you a part of that? Are you engaged in that? When you open up your wallet and you look at the monies you have and your checking accounts and, and how much money you make and what's in the savings account, are you stewarding that with Jesus as the central defining reality? Or is it the American dream that consumes us and Jesus just fits into there somewhere? Is ministry happening here because of you? Are people growing in Christ here because of you? Are missionaries being prayed for because of you? Is the kingdom of darkness being pushed back? Is Satan being crushed under our feet because of the gospel being lived out in your life? Or does Jesus just fit in somewhere? Does your family love Jesus more because of you? Do your friends and people around you love Jesus more because of you? Because you are so captivated by who Jesus is, everything revolves around him. This is where we go into what we call our ministry time. And I'm gonna invite a couple of Grace Group shepherds to come forward. Can I get some? We got these little badges over here. I don't know if they're over here too. Can I get some Grace Group shepherds to just come down on each side, just a couple? Someone join me and just put on one of these badges. And I just want you to know that if you want to come up for prayer, even after the service, this will identify someone that will be more than glad to pray for you. And so th these people are going to be up here and they're ready to pray with you. Can we have a female? Someone who loves Jesus. Thank you very much, Tracy. They're here to pray with you. But let's all bow our heads right now. This is our ministry time. This is where we open up our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, teach us. This is where we, we take all these categories of our lives and, and we place them before the Lord and we say, Lord, move in our lives. And if the Lord so moves you, come down and pray with someone. We've got this, these steps up here. Just come down and, and pray by yourself even, asking the Lord to do a work in your life. If you just don't even want to move out of your seat, grab the person next to you and say, would you please pray for me? Feel free to do all of that right now as we ask God to teach us, is the Lord Jesus Christ radically altering everything about you because of who he is? Pray silence.